So grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, that's totally great, fine, wonderful. Just grab one that looks like this in the pew in front of you. I'm on page 1021. 1021, really easy to find. Yeah, it would help if I told you what book and chapter. Every week you're complaining, Gwen. This is like third week in a row. First John, whoa, whoa, there was like a puberty hit there for a second. First John, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, if you brought your own device or book. The rest of y'all, I'll see you on page 1021. <laughs> I just want to read this passage together, and I want to dwell in it a little bit today. I think there's good news here for us. And uh, John writes this letter. Uh, we think to a church that is, uh, that is probably having some issues. It's wrestling over um, who God is and what it is to be a follower of God, which is kind of what our whole series is about, um, the evidence of repentance. What does it look like for us to actually follow God? And so here we have John, First John, uh, beginning with verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, then we lie and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And so we go back to that same verse there you had in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and forgives us our sins and cleanses us. From our unrighteousness. All right. So opening up this text is sort of weird. Uh, It says that God is light. Is that true? God looks like this. This is what God is. It's interesting, isn't it, that that he chooses to say God is light. It's a very matter-of-fact statement. No confusion. I say, is it true? And all of you are like, well, I can't say the Bible's not true, right? It kind of tricked you because you wanted to say, well, it's it's, it's a metaphor. Like, there's more to it than that. But you all were real scared there for a second. Can't say it's not true. What does it mean to say God is light? God moves at 300 million meters per second. Is that what it's trying to, to communicate to us? It's communicating that God is a photon and he's... No, we know that obviously is not true, that there's something that is that's more that's happening here. In fact, the Gospel of John famously, first, first John here, this letter of First John here, says also that God is love. Is that true? God is an emotion, that's what God is in his being. He is an emotion. He is a, a feeling, an action. You're still under the same spell. You still immediately had to say, yes, the Bible's true, even though we know, right, there's more complexity to it. Like, the, the Bible is scratching at a, at a surface here. It's trying to communicate to us something about a reality, a reality that even the authors of Scripture cannot hold inside of their mind. They cannot conceive of God. And so we work at metaphors, trying to 
trying to draw some kind of image that can get to the reality that we've experienced. Imagine explaining. So I think I've said this, and I feel like I've said this a few times recently. One of my favorite things is night. I love night. I love the stars. I love walking outside at night, and the weather's just cool enough to be cool, but just warm enough to be warm. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, it's like one day in Michigan that's like perfect. And you walk outside, and you're like, like the, the city lights seem down, and you kind of get that spread along the night sky, and you can just stand up there, and I just feel awe. You ever been there? Explain that awe to a blind person. Your favorite piece of music, sign language that to a person who is deaf, right? It's very hard to, to think about how would I express that image to somebody who has never seen that image. And that's what's being expressed to us here. There are people who have encountered Jesus, John the Apostle, who encountered Jesus. He says, it is like I lived in darkness my whole life. Like I was stumbling around, touching things, trying to figure out where things are at. I'm stubbing my toes. It's just, it's complete darkness. And then I met Jesus, and it was like someone turned the lights on. I could see. I couldn't see before, but now I can see. It was like I didn't know anything but enmity and anger and frustration and hate. It was like I had sort of cooped up in me this bitter root that just every time I really got at who I am or anytime something really got in my way, that bitterness, that root of frustration, that anger that's in me just kinds comes boiling out. That real me emerges. And that just happened again and again and again and again. And all of a sudden, I met Jesus and I knew love. I didn't know it before, but now I know it. Now I see it. It is like I was blind. It is like I was deaf. And now I hear the tune. I hear the music. And it makes me want to dance. That's what I think is being expressed here. It's so beautiful, so powerful, so poignant. What does it mean to say that God is light? And here, and often one of the ways in which just kind of a way of understanding scripture is that when we see bodies of literature that are related to one another, we listen to them both. Does that make sense? So we have a letter written by John in 1 John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, actually. And then we have the gospel written about Jesus by John, and they are related to one another. And so if we think about what does he mean when he says God is light, in him is no darkness at all, we can't help but think of going back to, to the gospel of John chapter 1, which tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Not a single thing that exists was made without him. As Colossians 1 puts it, by whom, through whom, for whom, all things have been made, both in heaven and in earth and under the earth. In him was life, and his life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which enlightens everyone is coming into the world. And when we met him, we didn't know what to do with him. I'm still not entirely sure what to do, do with Jesus. 
He constantly confounds my plans. Anybody? Anybody? He constantly confounds my plans. Every time I think I've got it nailed down, I open up the Bible and I realize, well, you don't have anything nailed down at all, you idiot. Right? I constantly come up with new questions. I constantly wonder new thoughts. Jesus doesn't leave us alone. It's this constant new lights in the sky of my life that open up new vistas of change and transformation. It's like I was blind and now I can see. And so here are some thoughts about about this text and some ways in which I think we see the lightness of God emerging, not just in this text, but in our lives. And the first one would be to point out grace and truth. Again, hearkening back to John chapter 1, I can't but think of this line that the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son coming from the Father, full of grace and truth. And aren't those two incredible things? Truth that illuminates what we call sin, all of the ways in which I have chosen my own will over and against God and over and against my neighbor. I have decided this is good for me and that's what I'm rolling with and I don't care who it hurts. I don't care how it transgresses, transgresses God's law. It is my will. And the truth of Jesus confronts us and says, no, that's not how it goes. God's will comes forward in Jesus and we now see not only law as it was given to Moses lists of do's and don'ts which are fine because it's better that we do what is right than we do what is evil but how much better is it to be transformed into the image of the living God how much better to be Jesus in the world because I don't think Jesus was ever I don't think Jesus ever stopped along his way and said you know what I wonder if I should do that. I wonder if that's right. Does the law have something to say about whether or not I can commit that sin and not get in trouble? No, his will is directed constantly toward God. And the transformation that he looks to bring upon us is that same kind of grace and truth. The same kind of grace and truth that I, we, we saw that clip last week from ben, Brendan Manning, which I, I find so beautiful. This, this grace and truth that is met in God where God can come up next to me and say every single thing that I don't ever want any of you to know about. Every secret desire, every secret skeleton, everything that I would turn red face and flee from the building if you heard that I thought, or said, or did it. God sits next to me and says, I know the truth of you. I know the truth of you. And I long to give you grace anyway. And as that meeting places in the powerful grace and truth, the kind of grace that doesn't leave us alone, the kind of grace that seeks to heal and to mold, the kind of grace that doesn't reject us in our sin, but rather says, why don't you leave that brokenness behind and come and meet grace come and meet the real thing come and meet the powerful god and i notice in this text how often or how how tied to fellowship that is do you notice that look at verse 7 
In the text that we read there, 1 John verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then immediately he doesn't jump into the forgiveness of sins. You notice that. He says we have fellowship with one another. And then he gets on to the blood of Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. That seems like a strange movement. It seems strange for him to bring fellowship into this because as I read this or was taught this as a child, this text had one meaning for me. It meant that I did things that were wrong and that if I wanted God not to send me to hell for those things, I better get on my knees and confess them post-haste, too sweet, right away. And I think that shrinks this text. It makes it another rule. I think there's so much more that is being opened up to us here. It is an invitation to enter into the life of God, and the life of God is most palpably felt in the life of his people. And without the life of his people, his forgiveness is not experienced or known. Without the life of his people, we will never know the fullness of truth, because who's going to confront you while you're by yourself reading your Bible? No one. That's the great thing about reading your Bible by yourself. No one says, I think you're guilty, (laughs) right? Sometimes the Spirit steps in, certainly, you know, so those of you who want to correct me after the service, just keep it to yourself. I know the Spirit, inv- I know the Spirit inv- intervenes, but oftentimes I find it's more people who intervene, people who show me that I get mad too quick, that my temper is gone too fast, that my thoughts wander too quickly, that my concern is really about me and not about you, right? It is when we interact with people that we have this fellowship that our sins actually kind of come boiling to the surface, and we realize, wow, we really need some grace. And the best way to experience grace is to have the kind of relationship with other people that allow you to to say what you're struggling with and for them to be God in that moment, sitting next to you, knowing your secret sin and loving you anyway. Have you ever had that experience? If not, you need to find it today. Find someone in this building who you can share your life with. Because without that, we're missing one of the biggest pieces, if not the biggest piece of the faith. We are to be a place of grace and truth. When people encounter you, they should experience grace and truth. The kind of grace and truth that we talked about here in a, mo- a moment ago where God sits next to you, knows the truth of you, and is not disgusted or dis- seeks to, or seeking to reject you. Instead, he brings you in. I think of all the passages that, that are brought up here, the, the, fellow, or the, the, the confession that is emerging in this text is not just me on my knees to God, but me within the church as we together confess our sins to, to God. As we confess our sins to one another and we seek that kind of healing and transformation. Some texts that bring this forward. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus teaches us to pray, he concludes his prayer with this. He says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. What a heavy word. We have to learn to forgive before we can experience forgiveness. And you don't learn to forgive until you offend somebody. And the best place to offend anyone is in church. You can, that's a tweet, I guess. Somebody should put that out. Best place to offend anyone is in church. Because you are contractually obligated to forgive one another. You cannot do otherwise. 
James puts it this way. He calls us to come together, confess your sins to one another, pray for one another that you may be healed. In fact, this is what that famous anointing passage is all about. It isn't about some kind of miraculous spell of healing that happens with oil. It is about the body, especially the elders, coming around the person who is broken in their sin and lifting them up and restoring them to the community. We are a community of broken people who are constantly being broken and brought back into fellowship brought back into grace. People confronted by truth, but brought back into grace. We experience this over and over and over again, and I think that is what John is after when he tries to explain to us, what is God? God's like light. He's like love. Another element of light is, of course, life. We read this, um, we read this in Revelation that in the kingdom of God, when this final event happens, when we see God in his fullness and resurrected from the dead and wickedness is put away, it says that in the kingdom of God, there is no night there. Have you ever read that? You remember that? I hope that's not true, actually. I really hope that in some way that is just metaphor um, because I'll miss the night sky. But I like the way that the, the strong draw that's being made here is that there's a difference. In death, we close our eyes. In death, we're put in the tomb. In death, there is darkness. And so when the scriptures say that in God, there is light and no darkness at all, in God, there is the fullness of life, there is no death at all. There is no death. There is no mourning. All of its sting, all of its power. And isn't it, isn't it powerful? Isn't death powerful? It's so strong. We're so afraid. We're so broken when people die who are important to us. It is so powerful. And yet scripture draws out this very reality that because of Jesus in his death and in his resurrection, there is life. Jesus says to that woman at the well, right? He says, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask me for water, and I would give you a spring that bubbles up. It's living water. And she says, well, that sounds good, but I have no idea what that means, right? I mean, we're scratching at these metaphors. How do you describe eternal life? How do you describe an absence of death, an absence of sickness, an absence of darkness? How do you describe that? Just say, God is light, but we are the people of life. And this is something we especially need to remember as we exist in a culture that is ever deepening in its darkness and commitment to death. That we are the people who stand from cradle to grave and say, life is precious and it belongs to God and to God alone. Humans have no right to raise their hands to bring death upon them. Life. In him is life. And his life is the light of men. But Jesus says famously to Nicodemus, you might remember this, shortly after that uh, uh, John 3.16 verse, for God so loved the world, gave his only begotten son. For me with all that. He says, I came into the world to bring light, but I was rejected. He says, men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And so what does the lightness of God communicate to us? It not only communicates to us grace and truth, and not only communicates us the power of light that dwells in God, but it communicates to us final victory. 
Like this whole march to Resurrection Sunday, this whole march to that week of passion, even in the horrifying death of Jesus Christ, all of it is touched with victory. It's on the edges until it's up front. And we as a church need to recapture that sense of victory even while the darkness seems like it's swallowing us up. That's where faith comes in. That light of faith that says we will not give up, we will not surrender. We have a king and a lord and a master and a God who stands over death itself. Over the power of sin itself. Over the powers that that grab a hold of our lives and seek to drag us back into the depths of depression or addiction or brokenness or family, corrupt family dynamics, whatever it is, God cuts those chains and lifts us up. He is victory. As we read, in God is light and there is no darkness at all. And if we wish to walk in the light as he is in the light, we have to recognize the truth of God. We have to recognize the brokenness in ourselves. And we have to have the desire to come to him. This is that whole range of the word repentance that we've been talking about for several weeks. But I love what we have in this text here in verses 5 through 10. Because it calls us to confess. It calls us to faithfulness. It calls us to recognize that there has to be some feet to our repentance some feet to our life in God. You cannot just occupy a pew or own a Bible and say to yourself, we're done. Not because that breaks a law, but because it's such a sad way to live Christian faith. What God wants to do in your life is so much greater and better and brighter and scarier than you've ever imagined. He wants to step in and radically reshape and reform and change you. Just like you could say with John one day, man, I, it was like I dwelled in darkness. And then suddenly the light came on and I saw the world in a way that I never understood it before. So what is our evidence of repentance? We've been talking about that over and over again. John clusters themes in this text that we can see. Repentance happens through the practice of confession. And here I don't mean just confession with God, but I mean confession with one another. Really involving our lives in such a way that when you're wrestling, you have someone to share that with. That is essential. That is an essential element of repentance and drawing together so that we can see uh, what God wants to do. So he draws us together in confession. He draws us together in fellowship. He draws us together into the light. And here I am not wanting to in any way bring a criticism against our church. Over this past month, this has been a crazy month. We've had several deaths. We've had several births. We've had a few hospital stays. We've had instances where our body really is hurting and struggling And you know what I have witnessed? I have witnessed all y'all rise up around them. Meals going out to them, phone calls going out to them, cards and visitations, things I don't even know about, things that that are happening under the scenes and you're keeping quiet because you read your Jesus and you know that's a good way to do it, right? 
But I see so much happening here. I see so much love happening here. I see so much energy that is happening here. And what I want to encourage you to do is to say that we are bearing out in so many ways the evidence of our repentance. And so my call to you today is to keep it up. To expand on these good works that are already happening around you. When God pricks your heart and says, listen, I... You remember so-and-so, and they looked down at church. I'm pay attention to those things and rise up around one another to make what we see here in John a reality, a transforming truth that not only are you changing because God is transforming you, but you are assisting in transforming others. And ultimately, that's the goal of the Christian life, is that we move beyond just taking in, taking in, taking in, taking And we move toward taking and giving. Taking and giving. Maybe receiving is a better word. Receiving and then giving. Our call is to move into the life that allows us to be the agents of change. And so if I could call you to be something in terms of what it is to to, uh, demonstrate your evidences of repentance, I'd give you this. As the band comes up and we begin to close down, I want to reflect on these three things. The first has to do with what we're talking, these three have to do with what we talked about with God being in the light. But the first thing is I would say that not only is God an agent of grace and truth, but we are also called to be agents of grace and truth. That whole incident that I said where we sit down next to somebody who we know is hurting and broken, who we know has as many skeletons in the closet as we do, and we do not reject that person for whatever it is, and we instead say, I have found the light. Can I show it to you? The second thing is we become allies for life, that we become like God in that we are recognizing it is him and only him that has the life and the light, and we are actively calling forth a recognition of that. And thirdly, we need to be a people, and this might be one of the most important things that I would love to see in evidence of repentance coming from a church or coming from even a Christian is an attitude of victory. Listen, if we serve God, like the God who made the galaxies and the atoms, we serve God. The God who said to the light be light, to the darkness be darkness, separated them, did all that. We serve God, the God who stepped into human history to draw a particular people for his own possession, preserving and protecting and guiding and leading until finally they would give to us Jesus Christ himself, God in flesh. If we serve God, the God who took on flesh and blood to walk amongst us to not only teach us what we ought to do but to display the fullness of the glory of God both in grace and truth if we serve God we serve the God who went to the cross bearing our sins our sorrows our shame if we serve God the God who was buried three days in the tomb the one who was risen from the grave ascended to the right hand of the Father and promises to come again to judge the quick and the, get, and the dead if we serve God shouldn't there be some fire in our bones that was the deadest fire I've ever heard shouldn't there be some fire in our bones some excitement We serve a God of the living, the God of victory, the God of power, the God of life, the God who is so indescribable that all we can say is things like, God is light, and God is love, and God wants to sit next to you, and so do I. 
That is the God we serve. Let's stand as we sing this last hymn.